welcome to The Wet Podcast, episode number one. I am Eric Marshall. I am your host. You can find the website for this podcast at ericmarshall.net slash wet. That's E-R-I-K, Marshall with two L's, dot net slash wet. You can also find me on Twitter at emarsh, E-M-A-R-S-H. And I've got a Twitter handle for this uh, podcast as well, which is Wet Podcast. Welcome. This is the very first episode of the Wet Podcast. Uh, Wet stands for Writing, Education, and Technology. Uh, I came up with the idea because these are three things that I'm interested in, so I figure there might be things that other people are also interested in. Uh, So each week I will bring you an interview with somebody in either the writing, education, or technology, or all of the above, or any two of the three, each week. This week we have Audrey Waters. I met Audrey a couple years ago at an an unconference called That Camp, Great Lakes, and when I decided to do this podcast, she was one of the first people that came to mind because she is very, very involved in education. She writes about education technology. Uh, she's kind of a skeptic about a lot of education technology, and uh, she's a very, very big name in the space. She has a weekly roundup that she uh, does on her website, Hack Education, every week. And uh, she's very, very active on Twitter, which uh, she'll tell you the Twitter handle when we get there. You can find show notes to this episode. If you just go to ericmarshall.net slash wet, you'll find Audrey Waters there. You can also find this podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. I do appreciate reviews on uh, iTunes as well as Stitcher. Reviews are the things that make podcasters continue on. You know, they're the ones that help people get found um, and things like that. So I, I appreciate after listening to this, maybe you go and do that. So welcome to episode number one. Let's move on to the interview. I'm here today with Audrey Waters. Um, Audrey, can you tell people where to find you on the uh, web? Sure. Uh, my my blog is Hack Education, HackEducation.com. Um, you can probably also find me um, on Twitter at Audrey Waters. Two T's. And you're very, very active on Twitter. I am active on Twitter, yes. You know, I was looking at your Twitter stream today before we did this, and I was scrolling back a little ways, and you had, uh, you know, I love Weird Al. I'm a huge Weird Al fan, and I've listened to that whole album a few times already, even though Uh it just came out Tuesday, and you had something about him using the word spastic. And I was listening to it in the car yesterday, and I had the same reaction. I was like, oh, come on, Al, seriously? Yeah, I mean, it's disappointing because on one hand, I mean, it's it's interesting because on one hand, um, you know, I taught, when I taught um, college, I taught uh, freshman writing, and I feel like in some ways grammar is one of those, like grammar is this sort of weird elitist thing that we sort of hammer into folks, sort of expect them to sort of speak a certain way and write a certain way. So I'm not a fan of the whole, like, apostrophe shaming, just as a general <laughs> rule. Um you know, I mean, it's easy to make it's easy to make mistakes. I make mistakes all the time, and I'm I'm a professional writer. Um, right. 
So the song was like bad enough for that, and then yeah, spastic and moron, and I'm like, oh my god. <laughs> and I saw all these teachers saying, oh, I'm going to use it in my class, and I thought, no, please don't. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> I am kind of a grammar snob like that. I'm pretty much a stickler for it. But like you said, we all make mistakes. You know, I'm uh, in the middle of editing something that I wrote, a uh, long piece, and I can't believe the mistakes I have in there. Yeah, I mean, yeah. for me, I I was just talking with my uh, with my partner about this yesterday. Like, commas are one that I find if I, I make a lot of comma, uh, it's more punctuation. You know, the punctuation errors. I'm, I stick commas in all the time, and I go back and edit, and I'm like, my God, like, I don't know what like what prompted me to put commas <laughs> in. Isn't this you know? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I have the same problem. Um, Sometimes, but you know, it's there's <laughs> there's a line that needs to be drawn somewhere. But yeah, I know it's it's a uh, it's a tough one for sure. Your main kind of thing that you do is ed tech, right? You you write about ed tech, and a lot of what you write is is kind of from the uh, the counter position um, of all the rah 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 yay, right? Yeah. You know, when I think ed tech, you're the first name that comes to mind. And I hope that's true for other people as well. If not, maybe after this it will be. I don't know, <laughs> right? But um, would you have? Uh, I mean, I don't know if you can encapsulate this uh, very succinctly. But what, what's, what do you have a kind of general position about ed tech that you want to take, or is it more case by case? Um, it's it's sort of it's interesting because I find myself on one hand um, I enjoy technology a lot. Like we said earlier, mm -hmm. you know, I'm I'm active on Twitter. I um, I, you know, I care. I can't imagine sort of not carrying my mobile device with me. Mm -hmm. um, I spend almost all day in front of my computer. It's how I make my living. Um, is thanks to you know internet technology. Um, so you know, uh, I'm a fan. <laughs> but mm -hmm. then on the other hand, I feel as though, as particularly as these technologies infiltrate our lives more and more, as as the um, economy. And the the political economy sort of gets more um, interwoven with these really powerful companies. Um, I think that we should at least be somewhat skeptical about where where we're headed with our technology usage. Usage. I mean, Google's a great example of this. Um, a company that I think a lot of folks have a very benevolent. Um, they think that Google is somehow the sort of benevolent company that really cares about knowledge and information and you know, they give us all of these free services, products and services to use. But then I want us to ask questions about what does that mean? What does it mean to sort of see the power shift from, say, the public library to a for-profit Silicon Valley-based technology company? I yeah, think so that those are questions, you know, we should be asking more and more. Yeah, so what happens when a for-profit company takes over some of the functions that um, heretofore have been done by nonprofit organizations, community right. organizations, libraries, right. schools, right? right? Things like that. Okay. Right. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. But Google's slogan is don't be evil, right? I think they ditched that slogan <laughs> when they when they bought the military robots and the drones. Oh <laughs> darn. <laughs> I have to rethink my whole online strategy now. <laughs> But I, but I think that it's actually, I mean, it's actually really, it's funny because I've been working sort of in and around and near um, ed tech. I mean, in, on one hand, sort of my whole life, I'm, I'm from the generation that 
first had the Apple computers, you know, in in our classrooms. I had an early exposure to Logo, um, you know, as oh, an eight-year-old. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I ended up um, getting a my bachelor's degree through distance education. It wasn't computer. It was a lot of sort of traditional correspondence work. But technology has sort of been a drive. I've been thinking a lot about technology as a as a student and as a teacher, and so I think that, um, you know, I think that we've reached the point now where we have to get beyond these conversations that are simply about cheerleading for technology. We can't just say, oh, computers in the classroom is is the thing, and that's all that's all we want to do. Yeah, I agree with you. I. Uh... I always consider myself kind of an early adopter um, of technology in my personal life, um, but also in the classroom, you know, when I teach. And I found uh, over the year, uh, last, I don't know, maybe three or four years, I found that I'm, I've become slower to adopt things. You know, I don't know if it's um, inertia or if I'm becoming more skeptical yeah. or what, um, because I think that maybe, I don't know, 10 years ago, I could pretty much count on being more kind of technologically advanced than all of my students or most of my students because like you logo the little turtle, you know, and all that, and, you know, yeah. I did all that too, and, you know, DOS and, and BBSs, like that was my thing, you know. Right. Um, yeah, I love that stuff. But they they started getting more, I guess, savvy in the sense of using technology a lot, but maybe not as critical, Right, so then I decided to become more critical in order to to kind of counter counterbalance that, but I think a lot of it has to do in part with the incredible rush to use technology almost kind of um, without thinking. You know, yeah. uh, it, it's the the best thing most colleges think they can do is just buy a bunch of computers or buy some software or throw everything on Blackboard or something. Right. Well, and for me, you know, that was another sort of pivotable part as a grad student um, teaching. Uh, I started teaching before the University of Oregon um, bought into Blackboard. But once the university had Blackboard, it really changed um, the sort of, there was sort of an administrative command for us to sort of put our content behind the, behind the, the, the LMS paywall, if you will, right? Mm-hmm. So only the students in our class could see the material. And I had already, you know, I had learned sort of, um, learned some very basic HTML skills. I had a lot of my handouts, my syllabus, et cetera, online. Not so much that my students would use it. They wanted a print handout. So this was like 1998, 99. But I did so so that my peers, fellow grad students, could, so that we could share, we could share content. So we could say, do you have a, you know, do you, back to the question of uh, grammar, do you have a, do you have a good handout on proper (laughs) comma usage in, you know, college level, um, college level papers? And so this, this decision to sort of go with Blackboard and ask people to not post on the open web was the first one of the first moments when I said, "Wow, like, actually, this this um, this vision of ed tech absolutely runs counter to my own personal philosophies about education." So it was the 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 close behind the paywall sort of thing rather than mm-hmm. open. So it wasn't about things being online or accessible outside of the classroom. It was about it being not open. Right. Not open and 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 this you know and I see I mean it, it fades into all of these other um, all of these other practices and beliefs I think that the university 
um, forwards. I mean, the the LMS is is such a perfect to me. It's such a perfect manifestation of many of the things that are wrong with higher education, right? So you have a class, um, and that this class is this sort of like distinct atomistic um, uh, piece of you know module that doesn't interact. So students work there doesn't interact with their work in other classes. Only the people mm -hmm. who are enrolled can see the content. At the end of the semester, it goes away. There's no sort of cross-discipline or um, even in the same, there's no, there's no sort of collaboration. Um, it's really very much about we have these little courses and the content just sort of lives in there and you <laughs> have to pay access to, um, to, to see what's behind the ball. So. Yeah, yeah, I agree completely. Um, especially from the teacher's perspective too, that that content lives there, and, in some, and with some LMSs, it's really hard to get off or yeah. transfer between not just one course to another, but outside of that course. You yep. know, and uh, it's hard to share with other with colleagues or other students. You know, outside of there. Right. Yeah. Right. So well, I think that this is one of the you know the, what I see sadly at the internet. Um, and the web sort of writ large is actually the rest of the web and the internet starting to look more and more like the LMS, right? Mm -hmm. instead, of, instead of things becoming more open, we're now pushing people into these little silos. Instead of really um, sort of being able to embrace the web, the open web, um, everything starts to look, I mean, it look more and more like a learning management system. I mean, the Coursera looks like a learning management system. Facebook looks like a learning management system. Yeah. You know, I mean it's it's the worst the worst piece of technology um, in one of the worst pieces of, of, of internet technology is now sort of sort of spreading its its ideology into other into other um, elements and I find that really disconcerting. And it's unfortunate I think that our student that we don't help students understand what that means, how these technologies, um, how these technologies perhaps um, have, how they don't really necessarily benefit them. Right. So their their data, the stuff. Like Facebook's a really good example. It's a closed system in a lot of ways. The data is kind of mm -hmm. it's there. It's, it's it's their data, right? <laughs> you know, once once yeah. once you once you put it there and. Um, you know they can use it for for kind of whatever they want, and um, I I think they they're getting a little better about letting you download it and you know kind of keep it locally. But it, you know mostly it's it's for them and it's it's some closed off thing, and mm -hmm. you can't it's hard to share outside of Facebook, right? That's a, that's right. a great that's that really is a good example. Um, you know, and Google of course is is making more and more inroads into. Um, you know, into higher ed as well. Mm -hmm. You know, we have um, at the places I teach. I think most of them, most of them have Gmail as their as the email um, for students, not for faculty. For some of them, strangely enough, but for students. Yeah, it is. It is kind of weird, um, and it's really useful in a lot of ways. It's easy to share documents. It's you know the. I mean, I like Gmail as for as an email system, but you know they're hosting a university or a college's um, email system, and they're you know there have been reports. You know this um, about them mining that data. You know the data in right. these private communications with professors and students and things like that. So, and that's something I think you're right. I think the students should be aware of. 
Yeah, I mean, and I think we just we don't we don't do a good job all along the way asking asking these questions, particularly about 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 data. Um, and that data, you know, I think that the word data, I think, um, you know, are back with background in humanities. I think a lot of folks think of data as numbers, yeah. um, but you know, once once it's digital. It's all like it's all data. The you know War and Peace, a giant novel, it becomes <laughs> data. Um, and so, I think that I mean I think that we should we need to talk to students about what happens to their content, what happens to the footprint that they leave behind that they don't even realize the issues around metadata, for example. That I think students are just I mean I think most people, um, but students in particular are pretty unaware of. Um, of the sort of traces that they leave just by clicking and pointing and surfing the web. Right, right, yeah. I find that a lot of my students are, are very cognizant of, of privacy issues um, more than more than I would sometimes think, you know. Um, a lot of them aren't even on a lot of the social networks, but you're right about the metadata and about, you know, tracking through clicks and all that stuff. It's a lot of things that that they don't know, right? And it's yeah. it's crazy, you know. It's it's and it's hard to keep up with too, you know. As a teacher, I teach, yeah. um, you know, um, tech stuff. I'm I do film I do film, but I talk about uh, video games and we do uh, units on the internet as well, like internet usage. And every semester, I have to redo that part of it, the internet part, because something new is going on. You know, right. uh, last week, last semester it was net neutrality. We talked a lot about that. You know, for example, um, and we've talked about metadata in the past, and um, the idea, you know, issues of privacy as well, which yeah. which obviously come up, and it's it's hard to even keep up with. Yeah, and I think it's it's interesting too because I think that right now, um, in a, you know, back to my earlier comments about the sort of growing economic power of the tech industry. Um, on one hand, um, I mean, particularly companies like Apple. Um, Apple that monetizes hardware and that is also sort of in the business of reselling content. Google, which remains largely an advertising company, but a lot of these sort of new technologies, the 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 their hopes for monetization are around our data, right? So Twitter, Twitter, um, you know, Twitter and Facebook are sort of picking up on that Google model, which is sort of. Um, it's an advertising-based, an advertising-based model, and so everyone is really excited that somehow people's data is going to have be sort of financially really valuable, and that it's going to contain these insights that are going to sort of solve the world's problems. So healthcare, there's the argument: if we just have more data, we're going to be able to solve the world's healthcare problems. If we just have more data, we'll be able to sort of make government work better. And I think in education. If we just have more data, we're going to be able to uncover how learning works, and no mm -hmm. child will be left behind. And it's like, it's this whole sort of new ideology around around data as well. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, and when it comes to the advert, you mentioned advertising. You know, what demographic is better? For advertisers than than high school and college students, yeah. right? You know, so so that's a very valuable area to be in if if that's your if that's your thing. But you're right; it's a double edged thing. Like they, there's this idea, data will help, right? But data is what they use to um, you know, to sell, right? To to mm -hmm. to figure out how to monetize, um, even our learning now at this right. point, right? Right. 
is which is crazy. Like Blackboard, you mentioned Blackboard earlier, right? And Blackboard is, I think, one of the the first to do this, right? To to enter into the the ed realm and and use paywalls and sell software for these things. And and what they're trying to do, I think, is is kind of copy the classroom. You know, you were talking earlier about the the classroom being um, atomistic, isolated. Right, and that's kind of true in classrooms to an extent, right? The way most people teach, you know, what I teach in my film class, um, and what you know, uh, you know, Professor Joe down the road, you know, teaches in his anthropology class, don't they don't mix? You know, there's no interdisciplinary disciplinarity right. to a large extent. I mean, sometimes there is, and we can make arguments that it all connects, but for students, you know, there's no connection, right? And uh, Blackboard's doing the same thing, and so are a lot of these. So here's your here's this one class, and here's this other class that you click on, and they're completely separate, right? right? Yeah. Um, and and I think Blackboard was the first, and I think a lot of um, a lot of colleges kind of uncritically just accepted Blackboard as this, as this great thing that was going to um, make things more efficient. That's the other thing. You said data, 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 yeah. efficiency, 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 yeah. right? And <laughs> I'm yeah. not sure even what that means anymore. <laughs> but um, but I will say, like, a lot of LMSs, you know, I it, it does help my teaching to an extent. Right, like this, just to have the syllabus online, you know. But like you said, I yeah. could have it on. You know, I remember when I was trying to go away from Blackboard years ago. I made my own Moodle install installation on my own site, and had students use that. And the learning curve was terrible, <laughs> you know, for for me and them. But it was really nice because they could make it everything public if they wanted to. Right. On that, and it was, you know. Um, I was it was on my server so I was in control of the data which I knew I wasn't going to do anything with. I wasn't going to sell it to advertisers, right, or anything like that. And that was nice. But you don't see I don't know if that's even if I did that today, I don't know if that would even be okay. Yeah. Well, this is what, one of the projects that I talk about a lot that I love the most in higher ed is the University of Mary Washington's domain of one's own. And it, on one hand, it sort of does harken back to, you know, that early web space, for example, that the University of Oregon gave me. That it was, you know, it was, you know, www.uoregon.edu tilde my mm-hmm. last name. Um, and I think we were allotted, uh, we were allotted a certain amount of server space, but they could host, we could host our websites there. But I love, um, I love what the University of Mary Washington does, which is they actually buy the domain. The students get to buy their own domain and they own their own domain. So it's not University of Mary Washington till you know till the your last name. It's right. it's www.whateveriwannabe.com. The university pays for the you know pays for the domain. They pay for the hosting um, while the student is um, a student. They teach the student a little bit about a LAMP stack, how do you do a WordPress install. And then when the students graduate, they have, they have their content, right? They have their data. Some students, they learn how to make subdomains, so they, you know, they would do a subdomain for each class. Um, they just perhaps have a WordPress blog where they use RSS and keywords to sort of make their their work show up in this in their professor's site but it's again it's this notion of sort of the students own their data but they're also performing their work on the open web which i think is really powerful and it does break down those silos those disciplinary silos those class silos that i think academia really still suffers from 
That, yeah, that's great. That sounds wonderful because then they have a sense that they own the data, yes. right, which they do, you know, and they can take it with them when they leave. And it also right. gives them the sense that what they're doing, they do in public, which I think yeah. is very important because everything and, we do, yeah. we do in public now. Right. Well, and it gives them an opportunity to sort of craft what they want their professional identity to look like, their mm -hmm. professional digital identity. I mean, that's the sort of unfortunate thing is that we have the sort of, oh, my God, don't put anything online. At, or schools do. You know, they sort of still have the thud around um, students using the open web. And then when, when students graduate from high school, for example, and you Google them, you find you find their Facebook page and that's right. you want to be able to have Facebook page not the first thing that everyone sees uh, right. even if you live the most vanilla life right Facebook shouldn't be the first thing that comes up right even if it's some kind of portfolio of student work yeah. or or yeah. something right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah I, 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 I've run into that too this kind of there's no we don't tell students to do things online that are that are public Right, for right. the most part, um, and and maybe that should be inverted. Yeah. So that they are doing that because that's I mean the first thing an employer is going to do is Google you. For sure. I mean, and I think that that's and they I think that students should be able to understand sort of how the mechanics of that the mechanics of that work right under the hood like what how do you actually how do you sort of identify that wow like my Facebook you know my Facebook I want to be able to do something so that Facebook isn't the first thing that comes up so. Why would Facebook, you know, help students understand why is Facebook one of the top results? How does Google, how does search, doesn't have to be Google, how does search work? Um, and sort of how can you, how can you manipulate that so that you can at least, even if you can't erase things from your digital, from the, di the digital footprint, but that you can still sort of skew the results so that you can put forward a better a better presentation of self. Yeah, we used to think that everything in in the digital realm was ephemeral. It was here and then it was gone. And now we know that it's the exact opposite. It's it's right. always there somewhere, right? Yeah. And, and and companies are getting better at connecting those things. Companies and governments are getting better at connecting those things. Right. 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 You know. Yeah. And uh, but yeah, as far as just the general open web, it's how do I present myself well? Right, mm -hmm. um, you know, and 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 that includes how does Google work, right? How do search engines right. work, you know, stuff like that. But right. also, you know, how do I create content? How do I, you know, make sure people know it's mine, you know, things yeah. like that. I mean, and students are creating really great content outside of school as well, right? Yeah. So I think of particularly um, the sort of whole. Um, young army of students who are making amazing videos around Minecraft, right? The, oh mine, my like, gosh. the stuff that they're building in Minecraft, then their how-to guides around Minecraft. Um, they're monetizing those in super interesting ways, whether it's just ads on, you know. So there's this whole sort of cottage industry around Minecraft videos that's in almost all cases not associated with an assignment that they're doing in school. So, right. you know, how do we sort of ha so how do we help leverage that as well so that students um, can sort of see that 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 stuff is is actually valued um, is valued by school that it actually demonstrates learning. Um, but again that they can learn to sort of be a lot more savvy with with the sort of digital identity that they're creating. Yeah, that's a good point. The Minecraft thing, oh my gosh, I, I, you are not kidding. <laughs> there is so much out there. I, I've uh, been in a position lately to have uh, 
been exposed to a lot of Minecraft videos. People doing all <laughs> kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, yeah, and I find that sometimes I'll have students uh, follow me on Twitter or even request me on Facebook, um, mm-hmm. things like that, and you know, kind of open up their digital lives to me in certain ways. Um, very often after the class is over, and I'm always quite amazed. Um, we're often quite amazed at what they're doing. You know, because yeah. sometimes they're doing some really cool stuff that doesn't come up in class, that doesn't, you, right. you know, for, for various reasons probably. Um, and they're doing really creative and cool stuff in public that is not translating into into my classroom um, and certainly probably not into anybody else's either. Yeah. And, you know, it would be nice to, to maybe, if they could find a way to to merge those two a little bit because, you know, what we're trying to teach them, what I'm trying to teach them a lot of, Sometimes they already know it, and they're ahead of the game, and they're doing things that are really innovative and, and cool just, just for fun. Right. You know, you know, because they want to, and they're learning how to build communities, or they're learning how to present themselves, or learning how to right yep. create entertaining material. Um, right. Sometimes intellectual material. Yeah. You know, things like that. Yeah, which is which is nice. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 nice to see that a lot of a lot of times. So, so that's. Do you think that's one of the main functions, or what one of the functions of, uh, say, a college education or a high school education should be to to teach people how to be how to be public in a certain way? Oh, that's a really that's a really interesting question. I mean, I actually think that there are that's that would be an an interesting way to define the project of education because right now. I see increasingly this, the narrative around why school is about personal economic success. Mm-hmm. And so we've, we've, we've almost forgotten this, this idea that schools were, to, were supposed to play an important democratic function, mm-hmm. right? that they were supposed to play an important civic function. I mean, sure, we still, there's still curriculum that points to a shared culture or a shared history, shared literature. Um, but really, the story right now is that you go to school, particularly college, so that you personally can earn a good salary. Um, so to, to have the question about education being what is your role in public, I think it sort of cracks that open because your role in public isn't just I have a six-figure job. Your role in public has all sorts of different responsibilities to your family, to your colleagues, to your community, um, than does this idea that school is just about money. Right, yeah. And I, I think there's always been, or there's long been that tension between, I think, what teachers in the classroom want to teach and what students want, because most students, especially now, are there yeah. because they want a job, and they've been told right. all along that the only way to get a job is to get a four-year degree. Yep. And um, so now they're stuck in my film class or an anthropology class I don't care about, because all they want to do is is make some money. But the yeah. But the problem there's a, there's an increasing tension there too, because uh, it's with the increasing cost of higher education, it mm-hmm. really does become an economic formula in a way or an economic consideration because if you're putting more and more and more money in as as you know I, the tuition is skyrocketing it has in the yeah. last decade or so and it's, it doesn't seem to be letting up at all you know that becomes a, a very different kind of um, calculus I think for students because you if you're gonna spend 50 60, 80, 100, whatever it might be, $1,000 to, to go to school, you're gonna, you, you have to be thinking about 
what's your return on that going to be? Right. right. And this is where this question of efficiency gets um, talked about a lot too. And efficiency, of course, is always sort of always neatly tied in with technology, right? But I think mm -hmm. that this is the two are sort of interwoven um, in our in our history, and they have been for a very I mean since the industrial revolution. But this notion that efficiency um, that we need to make schools more efficient, it's hard to sort of untangle that when um, when we don't we we're living such sort of we're living such a precarious economic existence mm -hmm. that this notion of having an inefficient education, which means you can learn at your own, you know you can learn at a leisurely pace, you can go into depth with the things that you're passionate about, that you can sort of pick and choose learning in a sort of without a direct path that you can sort of spiral your way through knowledge. It just doesn't make sense if the the fact of the matter is. You have to get in and out of your in and out of with a college degree as quickly as possible because because it's so outrageously expensive. So what becomes the what becomes important is efficiency, and what becomes important that efficiency is always about cost, um, or it's almost always about cost. Despite sort of despite I hear a lot of ed tech folks saying we're going to make learning more efficient as though we can sort of shoot the content into our brain stems more rapidly, right? Like that scene in The Matrix. But really, at the end of the day, conversations about efficiency and education have always been about how do we save money. Yeah, save money for the college, save money right. for the student, and then save right. time for the student, right? That's right. another part of the efficiency. Yep. Right. Yeah. yeah, and that's where you get into uh, online education, whether it's mm -hmm. through accredited colleges, universities, or if it's through um, like a Phoenix, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and there's there's been some pushback, I think, to to some of that, you know, to the online education. I I have, I have I'm of two minds on all that because I just, I just recently started teaching an online course, mm -hmm. um, and as of it's been a year and a half now, I guess, and it's a, it's a strange thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's very it 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 goes for college credit at the university I teach at, mm -hmm. and it's um it's a very popular course as you can as you can imagine, and it was a bit of a um adjustment for me. But I'm assuming that one of the reasons the university offers it is you know partly to serve students who can't get to class or live far away or whatever. But a lot of it's cost savings, I, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think that these are these are all uh, these are all questions. I think that have to be we have to sort of we have to wrestle with. I mean, I think that for myself, um, when I I dropped out of college when I was 19 and had a baby, and so I knew eventually as a you know as as a as a not quite teenage mom, but close to being a teenage mom, that I needed a degree. Uh, the credential, the piece of paper mattered. And so I, I went back to school and did a lot of correspondence course distance education at the time. And it was because I knew, I knew I wouldn't be taken seriously without a degree. For me, the quality, I knew I wasn't getting a great education, <laughs> but I was going to have a piece of paper. Right. And so I think that it's, you know, I think that the, all of these factors play into the decisions that students make. And as long as we're really privileging that credential, as long as we're playing a game in which the credential is what matters, not what you know, but the piece of paper, not what you can do, 
with a piece of paper, then we're going to be stuck in this, we're sort of stuck with this system where students are going to go into massive amounts of debt, they're going to take the classes from the University of Phoenix, because they know that's the, that's the market, that's that we're living in this sort of credential-based credential market. Right, and as more and more people get that credential, and the credential means less and less, because yeah. you don't know, like, what does that credential mean? Less and less, it, I mean, I think there might have been a time where it meant you knew a certain amount of stuff. You could do a certain amount of things. Like, a lot of times it's just you can sit around for four years and right. sit in a classroom, right, which is good for a lot of employers, right? Oh, this person right. can sit still and pay attention. That's great. Yeah. Um, you know, or could, you know, could, but, you know, it could mean a lot of different things, too, with depending on majors and all that. But I think that, you know, with, with the proliferation of online universities and different types of colleges and universities, it doesn't mean as much. And with more and more people with the credential, it, it's very difficult to get a job in most fields with a bachelor's degree now. Yep. As I'm sure you know, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I mean, it's hard to get a job with a PhD. Let me tell you. <laughs> you know, it's 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 creeping. You know, the the whole. It's but you're right about the credential thing, and so there's been this other movement um, that, that I keep hearing about here and there about trying to kind of do an end around around that um, and and avoid school altogether. Um, MOOCs, I think, fit into that. Mm -hmm. um, massively on... How does MOOCs stand for? Um, massively... Massive online. Open <laughs> Online Courses. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> I knew all the words. I couldn't put them together. Um, yeah, I think MOOCs and then the whole um, Khan Academy uh, phenomenon, I think, is part of that kind of devaluing um, teachers to a large extent, but but devaluing kind of the formal education system and, and credentialing, I think, to an extent. Um, but I hear that, you know, in, in some quarters that, you know, getting a degree is unnecessary, it's a waste of time, it's a waste of money, yeah. uh, but I don't know how else to measure the skills that somebody may or may not have at, at this point. I mean, I don't know, what do you, what do you think about that? I mean, I, I look with definitely raised eyebrows at anyone who's making the argument, don't go to school, right. um, because I feel as though, you know, again, there's, I mean, there's already this sort of whole prestige market, right? So the, this notion that a Harvard, you know, a Harvard degree trumps any other degree. So mm -hmm. already, already we have hierarchies in what sort of, which degrees matter and which degrees don't matter. And those are those are often mapped on to economic um, economic power as well. A lot of the folks I hear talking about that college doesn't matter already have access to that economic power. They already have they already benefit from the sorts of things that a Harvard education affords you, which is introduction to powerful networks of powerful people who make the decisions that run this country. I mean, that's why a Harvard degree matters. A Harvard degree doesn't matter because somehow the stuff you learn there is like so much better than the stuff you learn at any other university. That what matters about Harvard is that's where powerful people are. Um, and I think that when I hear folks say, don't go to school, I worry that the folks who most need access to powerful networks of people are are already sort of losing out in this system, and I'm just not sure how one would uh, how one is going to get access to networks of powerful people, um, <laughs> in, unless you already are a powerful person. Right, <laughs> right. 
Yeah, I agree. This whole don't go to school thing, it's very it's kind of mystifying to me in a certain way. Um but I mean I do I do get it, you know, especially yeah. as costs rise. Um but I don't know what the what the uh what the alternative would be. Well, you know, I have a so my son is is 21. He's not in college. He decided not to go to college. Um and I used to joke saying, you know, he'll be fine because, you know, white American men tend to be fine. Um, but it's, it's, it's not. I mean, I think that the economy is really lousy, and it's particularly lousy for the young. Um, if it's, it's hard. I mean, it's hard if you have a degree, but it's even harder if you don't. And yeah. the sorts of jobs that one would have been able to do a decade or two ago without a college degree, um, they just don't, or the, they don't exist any longer. Um, you know, things like construction, for example. Um, so, I, I mean, I think it's a real, it's a, it's a real dilemma. And I look at my son now sort of thinking, he's sort of thinking, maybe I should go to school. Mm -hmm. But he's making, he's making um, decisions on what he would study based on, um, sort of, a, based on jobs. Um, which is sort of very different than I'm going to go to college and I'm going to sort of get a liberal arts education and eventually I'll find my way in the world because that's what college affords me. Um, it's it's a much more it's a much more practical, um, job oriented vision that th that's what education means to him. Again, tied to the story that that's why you go to school is to get a job. So I mean, it's sort of like what happens. What happens to poetry? What happens to theater? What happens to philosophy when students are like, uh, I just gotta, I just gotta get a, I gotta get enough certificate certification so that I can get a job in the healthcare sector. Right, right. I mean, I was a French major. I mean, what was that? What was that? I? I wasn't thinking about jobs, obviously. I right? have a degree in folklore, so it's okay. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. And I loved it, you know. Yeah, and and you actually, know? I mean, and those those actually, I could I could easily list how a folklore degree gave me real practical, viable, marketable job skills. But that's not even the point. Like that misses the point for me. Right. Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, my goal was to be a high school teacher, so I did have a job trajectory, but really I just like French, you know, at the time. <laughs> so, you know, and I learned a lot of cool stuff, and, and that's why we take the liberal arts classes, and that's why we have these uh, right. requirements that students tend to hate, right? Um, you know, why do I have to take this philosophy class? I just want to, like you said, get a job in the healthcare system. But yeah, hopefully they... It, as they after they graduate, they start putting that together. Hopefully, who knows? Um, hopefully, I, I I feel too. I mean, you know, I taught in addition to teaching freshman writing, I taught um, literature classes that filled you know filled the requirements, the world literature requirements for non-literature majors. So I would end up with classes full of folks who hated hated to read. They hated literature. They were rolling their eyes. But I, but I, I, I mean, I feel as though you you work with that then, and you sort of hope that you can instill a, a spark of like the sort of humanities spark in into students who, when they do sort of move on with in their in their degree, they still understand why poetry matters. They still understand how to watch a film and to sort of understand, um, you know, understand how a film is made technically and also how a film is made sort of in, in the story, the visual story that it tells. These are right. important, you know, these are important skills. 
and within the culture and everything else. Yeah, yeah that's always exactly. my hope in the film class is that at least some of them get you know get that spark and go, oh wow, this is this matters. Yeah. That's what that's what happened to me, and I, that's why I went into film is I had a film class as an undergraduate, and I I was it was just one of those visual performing arts requirements you have to take. Mm-hmm. You know, okay, I guess I'll take film. It's better than dance or something, right? <laughs> and uh, it changed my career trajectory. <laughs> you know, it changed a lot of you know. So I'm not hoping that happens for all my students necessarily. But uh, when you're when you're uh, so your son's 21. Did you counsel him not to go to college, or did you tell him he should, or was it kind of uh, you're more of a laissez-faire kind of? Um, it was more of a laissez-faire thing. I mean, he never liked school, and I think he also grew up with his mom in college and graduate school, right? So mm-hmm. I like he grew up sort of looking and thinking at the time, like I don't get this argument that college makes you better off financially, because like we're poor, and I would say, well, like, yeah, I'm a grad student, like that's. That's how that works. So, um, but he never really liked school, and I said to him, "Then call, you know, college is actually school." Uh, um, so I, I encouraged him to go, you know, try to find a path, another path. Um, will, you know, but I think I think eventually he will probably do some sort of further school. But it's hard. It's hard to. It's you know, to go back into that system once you've left that system, even to even even at the community college level, he he you know he'll go and the first thing that they want to do is a bunch of placement tests, and he looks at the math tests and he's like, ah, I think I like so I still like working in restaurants. So. <laughs> I guess I understand that. I think taking some time off after high school is not a terrible idea, right? Because it gives you some life experience and, yeah. and really lets you think about, do I want to do this and, and why? Right. You know, I right. find that a lot of the students that I have who have life experience are, are better students a lot of times as well. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, um, I mean, and that's, that, I mean, that is the sort of this other unfortunate side effect of saying everyone should go to college is that we sort of extended the lifespan of the high school experience. Right, mm-hmm. so it's sort of delaying. I think in some ways it almost delays adulthood. Um, that you sort of, um, we're sort of students don't really figure out who they are now until I'm not sure if we would anyway already. But I mean, students students you know can go from 18 to 22 and still have no clue, no clue about who they are, what they want, what they want to do. But then they've spent all this money. They many of them have gone into debt. And they're still sort of like, <laughs> who am I? And yeah. like, well, you're you're still you know, you're still young. Yeah, you're young and with you know tens of thousands of dollars of debt a lot of times. Yeah, right? ouch. Yeah, and that's the part that to me kind of that's that that to me is the problem. It's not the waste of time <laughs> college that some people right. think college is. I think college is a good use of time. Right. right. For most people, for a lot of people. Um, but it's that kind of, I'm 22, I'm young, I don't know what I want to do, but I have to pay these loans off now, right, yeah. which are getting larger and larger. And that's that's where it gets a little a little dicey for me because the, the risk gets greater and greater. Yeah. Well, and the, you know, I mean, and the, the ability to find a job, I mean, it's been seven years since I, uh, since I, last taught. I mean, already those students sort of believed that all they needed was a piece of paper that said that they had a bachelor's degree and they were going to walk into a six-figure 
job. And <laughs> right. you know, this was before the you know this was you know before this latest recession hit. But even then, I was like, yeah, I don't know, I don't know who told you that, but that's just not that's just not how it works. It's not like you get a di diploma and a job offer at Goldman Sachs. I mean, unless you go to Harvard, right? I guess right. those come together at Harvard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Harvard, yes, yeah, yeah. It's not like you, you, you. They give you the diploma, you're in the whole regalia, and then at the end of the line, there's someone like, "Hey, you want a job?" <laughs> right? You know. And I've heard right. horror stories about new graduates who go to job interviews where it's like a mass interview, where like there are oh. ten people there at the same time, all with bachelor's degrees, and you know, it's uh, it's That's, pretty brutal, especially yeah. if you're not specialized, right? If you right. don't have a specialization, so. Right. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a tough one. I don't know if you've seen Mike Judge's Silicon Valley. I haven't. I haven't seen it. There's a character in there who who goes on on about you know college is stupid if you know if you, know, you should never go to college and he wants to offer college dropouts jobs you know in the tech industry, and like it's it's a it's a caricature of course right it's like right. this really exaggerated kind of kind of thing, um, but I think that's a pretty it's prevalent you know you have this kind of narrative of Bill Gates was a college dropout or Steve Jobs ever went to college yeah, yeah. but where was Bill Gates a college dropout and right. and what are, what was his background, right? These guys have right. backgrounds that, you know, kind of um, very privileged backgrounds, right? They're not just, right. you know, um, it's not that anybody can do that, and there are a lot of um, social and economic factors involved that people kind of ignore in those stories. Yeah, I mean, this is actually, I think this is really interesting that we see the rise of the don't-go-to-school story with the tech sector because I think that a lot of the folks in the tech sector are self-taught um, partially because you know we we just haven't you know we have hundreds of years of learning how to teach poetry hundreds of years of figuring out how to teach physics we don't actually have a very lengthy history of how do you teach computer science most so I think most folks who have technical chops are self-taught. I was self, -taught, you know, the, what I learned was self-taught. I have never taken a, a class on on building websites, and I think that this notion that I'm self-taught, I'm an autodidact, I was, I'm sort of is now a lot of those folks assume that's the way everyone learns, that's the way one learns best. My teachers actually sneered at me for for doing programming. So screw them, screw education. You know, we don't actually need this this old institution any longer. I mean, I think that the tech sector, autodidacts, and self-taught programmers are really sort of why this conversation is so powerful among the the Peter Fields of the world, for example. Yeah. Who has a degree from Stanford? <laughs> By the way. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. I I uh yeah, I agree with you completely. I think that there was I don't know if it's generational generational or not. I think it's not, but I think that you and I, I think are of the same generation, mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure. And like as you mentioned logo and we we're talking about DOS yeah. and all that stuff, and I was self taught with all that stuff. And I probably if I had been serious about it going into high school, um and beyond, I probably could have Probably could have worked in the tech sector and done and done yep. all that if I hadn't discovered alcohol and girls and you know <laughs> <Yeah>. and French. <laughs> so, but uh, <laughs> you know, I, I wouldn't even had to go to college probably at that time. This is we're right. talking about the right. early '90s um, right. through the mid '90s, I think. You know, uh, but today I think that's I think it's different. 
Um, I think it's different. I think it is, yeah. But I mean, I, I'm very sympathetic to that DIY ethos. You know, I, I think, you know, I like, you know, I, and so there, I'm very sympathetic to the argument in that sense. Like, let's find a different way to do things. Let's find a way to do it ourselves. We don't need these outside authorities telling us what we can or cannot do or what we're qualified or not qualified to do. I mean, this is why I like podcasting. This is why, you know, you like blogging. This is why, right, <laughs> right? We're, we're both doing some right. fairly non-traditional stuff, right, um, within the kind of academic realm. But, um, but I don't think that the blanket advice don't go to college or the blanket advice everybody should go to college I don't think either yeah. one works right totally, yeah. totally. Yeah, there are ways to do things yourself yeah for, for sure but <laughs> you know well, and it's it, tough you know I think that one of the things that school you know school is supposed to be the thing I mean we, we, we tell the story that school helps you improve your economic lot in life I'm not sure that's necessarily entirely true it's a nice it's a nice story but the other thing that schools do have is that we do have this sort of legal history bound up with schools that schools are actually an agent like they are actually legally required to sort of be um, to think about issues like sexual discrimination racial discrimination and to, um, and schools are an avenue I think for women and for people of color in a way that I just have zero confidence in the tech sector <laughs> being an avenue I mean I look at the you know you look at the makeup the demographics of Google you look at the demographics of Facebook um, it's it's not it's it's inc the lack of diversity is is shocking and so I think if we were to say DIY let's just you know let's programming doesn't have to have this sort of um, doesn't doesn't happen through schools and I think we're going to probably continue to see the sector be overwhelmingly male overwhelmingly white and Asian yeah I think that's I think that's right um, yeah, I was again looking through your tweet stream earlier today and I actually copied and pasted one into this thing I want to read back a tweet that, of your own tweet <laughs> okay. to you um, I think this was from yesterday I'm not sure you said y'all can repeat your schools are broken story but your Silicon Valley elitist racist anti-democratic <laughs> BS sure shows how to make it worse <laughs> which, which is right right I mean, that's, um, yeah I mean, I think that this is the, you know, the this is the funny thing is that I hear this story now repeated, and we've been repeating the story schools are broken, I think since the first public school, right? So since we've had public schools, we've always said, wow, this this sucks. Um, I think that, you know, we hear the, the nation at risk, for example, the Reagan document, nation at risk, said schools are broken. I think that we've always sort of had this story. I think that when Silicon Valley sort of bites onto this and now tries to sell us its product instead, um, and I think sort of actively works to dismantle the public sphere, actively works to sort of lobby in, you know, Google is one of the largest lobbying, um, spend more money on lobbying than almost any other organization. I mean, Google isn't, Google isn't some sort of like sitting quietly on the sidelines. Google is actively shaping what our laws look like. Um, and I mean, I find corporate lobbying to be fairly anti-democratic. So I'm, I mean, I find it really troubling that, that the folk, that these sort of this, this loud group of very privileged folks who had a lot of economic power, increasingly a lot of political power, are so desperate to sort of dismantle the public sphere whether it's libraries, schools, or democracy.
Yeah, and that's that's very well said, and I, I agree completely. That's that's the thing that gets me about a lot of the because they they say you don't need school to teach yourself, but then they turn around and they want to sell all this tech to schools, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Um, to a large extent, anyway, or or circumvent them and. Yeah, and and like you said, it starts to dismantle the public sphere in in place and put in its place a corporate-run, data-driven, advertising-driven um, replacement yep. for the public sphere. Yeah, right. anti anti-union, anti-collective, individualistic, libertarian barf. No, thank you. <laughs> right. <laughs> Thanks for keeping it clean there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've been trying real hard. hard. I know it's hard. I know it's hard. Trust me, I've been doing the same thing. <laughs> I might change that policy at some point. Well, we're we're going on about an hour here, so I guess we should we should wrap up. Um, yeah. Is there? Uh, I mean, anything in particular that you're working on? That I know you're working on a book. We haven't talked about I that. I am working yet. on a book. Yeah. Um, it's, I'm working on a book on, again, like the sort of cultural history of education technology. Um, it's on the history of teaching machines. And I'm, you know, I think what inspired it was actually a lot of these MOOC providers have a background in artificial intelligence. And I was like, uh, it struck me as, as weird. Um, so I started to sort of poke into more and more of the history of automation and the history of you know, how do we create machines that teach and machines that learn and how does that shape the way in which we think about humans um, so that's the that's that's the book I'm working on this summer that sounds great I will definitely pick that up I'll put links to your sites in the show notes for sure and then once once the Excellent. book's out you know Thank obviously you. I'll, I'll plug that as well it sounds it sounds sure. fascinating sounds absolutely fascinating and then where so where can people find you um, on my site is hackeducation.com and on Twitter um, where I probably do drop the odd F-bomb um, <laughs> at Audrey Waters. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, me too. <laughs> Actually, I'm at eMarsh if anyone <laughs> wants to know and I, you know, I also am pretty irreverent on, on Twitter sometimes, so. Which is, you know, which is fine. So, yeah, I'll definitely link to all that on the show notes. And you can find those show notes at ericmarshall.net slash wet. That's Eric with a K, marshall.net slash wet. This has been Eric Marshall. You can find me on Twitter at eMarsh. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Audrey Waters. Uh, next Friday, please stay tuned for another fascinating interview with Paul Levinson. 